Imagine that one day you're sitting at your computer, minding your own business, maybe you're at work, and you receive a rather curious email. It's directed to you, and you see that it contains a quite unusual invitation. You've been invited, apparently, to become a part of a secret collective, some anonymous organization that promises you big things. You don't know how they got your personal information, but they claim that someone who knows you recommended you to become a part of this underground group. What do you think? Is it a scam, a cult, something potentially dangerous, or would you keep reading? Now imagine that you're a professional woman, an attorney of 20 years, in a working world surrounded by men, in what feels like an old boys club. You're feeling reminded of your gender identity, you're encountering various forms of discrimination, marginalization, harassment, microaggressions, and so forth on a regular basis. And finally, imagine that that email from that anonymous organization says that it has been designed for a professional woman like you to take some power back from that boys club and to rewrite the rules of what work can be. Would you answer the call of that email now? From the News Story Company, this is The News Story Is, a podcast that explores the stories, perceptions, and ideas that have come to shape our world today as we know it. Along the way, we speak to talented guests who are championing the new stories that may shape our collective future for the good. I'm Dave Rosillo. These are some of the big questions that my guest today asked when she, much like the protagonist of her new novel, received an email quite like this in real life one day. I'm joined today by Catherine McKenzie. She's a USA Today bestselling author and a former attorney who practiced law for 20 years. Her new novel is called Please Join Us, and it's based on the real invitation she received in 2019 to join an unnamed women's collective that promised to help her career. What was so intriguing for Catherine about the strange invitation she received and used for inspiration for her new novel? And what might that intrigue say about the state of work and what professional women are still dealing with in male-dominated companies and cultures in the 21st century? Catherine, welcome to The New Story Is, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, Catherine, in the opening pages of Please Join Us, we meet your protagonist, whose name is Nicole, who is also an attorney like, like you were in real life, and she receives this mysterious email. Can you tell us what it was like for you to receive that similar email in real life? What ran through your head as you read it? You know, it's a, a friend of mine had actually been speaking to me about an organization that she was in. And I had also started a women's networking group in Montreal where I live and used to practice law. So I, I wasn't thinking that it was anything sinister. I, I was just like, is this for real or is it a scam? I think was more where my brain was going. The invitation obviously stuck out enough for you to base your novel on it, uh, even though it didn't right. seem in real life to be completely sinister. But what do you what do you think about um, or do you still think about the letter or who sent it or her referred you to this day or or is the mystery something that you embellished for for the story to really have like an interesting launching point of what would the reader do if this no, happened I to mean, them? There's actually elements in it in, in the real life that I didn't put in the book, which is is, you know, I did, they did have a website. So I went to the website and, and I did write back to the person to say, you know, who recommended me for this. And they sent back, so it seemed like a, a set text that came back to me. Like, we mm -hmm. can't tell you that, but here's some things we can tell you. And the mm -hmm. formatting was a bit weird. Like this, the sentence would like go and then go onto another line and then there'd be like a hard return. So it was like an oddly formatted email. Um, and their website was pretty basic. Um, 
And then I was like, oh, like, so it, it wasn't, it was an invitation to apply. So it wasn't actually an invitation to join. Mm-hmm. So there was an application that I had to fill out. And I started filling it out, like, just out of curiosity. And then I stopped because I was like, what am I doing? And, um, <laughs> but then I got this email the next day that was like, you started filling out our application and didn't finish, you know? Uh, and I'm like, okay, that's a bit creepy. And I had talked to it about it to my husband, um, uh, and, and, you know, he had a similar reaction to uh, Nicole's husband in the book, which is like, this is obviously a cult. Like, this is crazy. You're not going. Uh, but in real life, I was like, well, I could get a book out of it. You never know. You know, I, I think authors <laughs> sometimes do things that they wouldn't normally do just because they contain potential book ideas. Um, and um, and and I was like, OK, I was like, I'm not going. This is silly. But I did. They did email me two or three more times. Like, are you sure you don't want to fill out your application? I got. It was like an. It felt automated. Mm-hmm. So I think that's why it stuck with me because it wasn't just this one interaction. It was probably four or five emails, and I deleted it. And and then, you know, six months later, when I um, thought about it for the book idea, I was like, maybe I should just go see if I can find this thing. So I didn't even remember what it was called, or mm-hmm. and I couldn't find the email in my email. So, I mean, they were deleted, whatever, you know? So, um, so that's all I know about the organization. I still don't know. And, and oddly, I never asked the woman who had talked to me about going or being invited to this semi-secretive organization. If that was the one, I don't know why I didn't write to her and say, is this what you were talking to me about? Yeah. (laughs) You know? Um, so, uh, so, and, and maybe it was because I already kind of had in my head that I was going to be leaving my job. I don't know. But but I think that's why it stuck with me because I, I did interact with whatever it was um, yeah. many times. And, and I think just as a writer, you know, we're always looking for things that we can turn into stories. Um, and so that did stick with me. But like I said, probably more because of elements that I left out of the book mm-hmm. than the elements that I put in. Yeah. Well, well, you, you, there's two interesting threads to that, Catherine, which is like one, there's, um, there's the intrigue based in your identity and your, and your profession as a writer, as an author, as a storyteller that was like, Oh, maybe this is something that I would explore just to kind of see what, what it is, uh, like the natural curiosity that a lot of like writers and authors and storytellers not only have, but require to be, to be, proficient and, um, or prolific even storytellers. Um, I wonder in the context of the conversation you were having with that friend who mentioned something about a group and in, in the email that you received, uh, you know, I always feel like the things that stand out that catch our attention, um, the things that marketers try to do, right? Like, it sounds like this, this group might've been using those tactics of like, if somebody clicks the link, then send them a follow-up email. The things that really catch our attention, sometimes they can just be insistent, you know, and and repetitious or aggressive. Sometimes they can really though speak to our own psychology or emotional world in a moment of like when we're looking for something or we're, we have a problem that we want to be solved. And I'm curious if in the scope of where you were in your career at the time, if the appeal of a group or a collective, a retreat had had something attached to it that made you feel like there was a promise or a potential there. And if not for you, can you see what the, the appeal or potential could be for a professional woman like you were and continue to be, but in, specifically in the, in, in the, in the law, uh, in, in a law culture? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, I think in the culture that I was in as a litigator, a partner in a firm, there is definitely pressure to produce, which is um, most of, we didn't have lots of institutional clients. So lots of big companies with tens and tens of litigation, we had more sort of one-off files. And so you're always looking for your next client, um, your next referral from another lawyer. And, and there's a certain amount of pressure to that. So for sure that played into it as it, you know, and, and, and part of why I formed my own women's networking group was mm-hmm. because, you know, most of the work of my former firm was referrals from other lawyers. And I had noticed time and again that, um, men, <laughs> but even women sometimes were referring files, you know, not to me, even though we were friends or I'd gone to law school together or whatever, but to the male seen more senior partners in the firm. And, mm-hmm. and that was one thing when I was like 30 years old and only working for a couple of years, but you know, I was in my late forties and, or, you know, mid to late forties and had been doing it forever. And, and there was no point reason for that other than I think our sort of gendered expectations of, you know, who we should send work to and, and, Mm -hmm. um, things like that. So I I think, you know, for sure, that was part of the reason why I I clicked it was, oh, maybe these people can help me bring in clients that I need to bring in. So, yeah. 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 With the, with the networking group that you started, um, how long were you into your career when you began that? And and were you finding or, or hearing similar stories and experiences? Because obviously I'm speaking from from a, a male identity, from a male point of view, but with right. with many women with whom I work and with whom I'm like biologically related, this is a common theme. It's a common refrain, right? This isn't uh, this isn't groundbreaking mm-hmm. news to say that there's a lot of like systemic gender based discrimination, overlooking of certain people, prefer like preferring based on. Um, social and cultural values, um, one gender group to another, especially in like these like high powered environments where you think or are told that a certain type of demeanor, a certain type of like aggression or alpha maleness is necessarily better or stronger or more productive or whatever the case may be. It's like, it's entrenched in everything. Um, Were you finding that in your personal experiences, uh, especially among the networking group that you started, that this was a common refrain and a common issue that was affecting a lot of work. Oh, for sure. For sure. For sure. I mean, you know, one of the sort of catchphrases in that profession is an excuse for why they want the old male lawyer is, you know, well, we want, we want the gray hair, like the experience. And it's like, yeah, but women don't let their hair go gray or aren't allowed to let their hair go gray. So that's just code for men, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) and you know what? I'm actually approaching 50 and this is my natural hair color. Like it's not gray yet. So <laughs> should I, was I supposed to dye my hair gray? So people, you know, if I just yeah. look young, I just look young. So, um, for sure that was still there. Um, and, and in a way, you know, things obviously different than they were 40 years ago, but, um, like so much discrimination, uh, it just gets more covert, mm-hmm. you know, like where they maybe we used to say, like, we're not going to, we're firing you because you're pregnant, you know, that, that used to be allowed. Right. No one would say that now, but we're not going to get, well, oh, you're leaving on maternity leave in nine months. So we're not going to give you that file. Like, does that happen? Mm-hmm. Of course it does. Um, and many, many, many other examples. I mean, many times where many, many times people assumed I was lawyers in my office's assistant. Um mm-hmm. I had a male assistant. People assumed he was the lawyer and I was, the, you know, I mean, just stuff like that, which is 
it, it just it, it eats away at you over time, right? It's it's not any individual incident. Any individual incident can be laughed off and like, oh, whatever, it's no big deal. But I think, um, you know, the way many people, women felt with me too, which it, it wasn't just the horrifying stories that were coming out. It was the way we started reflecting on our own experiences and our own Me Too's and mm-hmm. the accumulation of the just sometimes daily, sometimes weekly, sometimes daily, whatever, just the accumulation of those events over a lifetime that you were told to push away and shove down and don't be difficult and, you know, don't bring it up, don't wait, don't rock the boat, blah, blah, blah. So, and and I think that I, I don't want to equate that experience to people who went through some like extremely traumatic things, mm-hmm. but the accumulation of small incidents like that can also wear you down. And, and for sure, I mean, when we recruited people to this um, organization, we would start, my my law partner and I would start by going to lunch. And it was just a two hours of stories, always the same. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Everyone. Oh, yeah. and, and I'm, you know, I often say that Me Too hasn't come to the law and it hasn't come to many industries, but it's not because there aren't stories. Like we right. all have stories. Um and those guys are still around and still valued. Um, and people still look the other way because they make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, this is definitely <laughs> still goes on and, and, and it's harder too, right? It's harder when it's not that such the overt example. Mm-hmm. It's like, how do you, I was just having a conversation with my husband about how, when I meet people and I tell them I'm a novelist, of the time, the assumption is that I self-publish and there's nothing wrong with self-publishing, but why, like, why is that the assumption? When I was a lawyer, no one was like, oh, so you got your degree online, you know, right? Right. People, people are like, oh yeah, you're a lawyer. You work at a law firm, you know, (laughs) right? Like, um, and I think it's gendered. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think that most of my male author friends get that as a first response. I think it's more like, oh, who's your publisher? Or have I heard of you? Mm -hmm. And you know, it's, 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 but I don't have, do I have proof that it's gendered? I don't have a scientific study to prove it, but it feels gendered. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I'm sure a scientific study would validate it <laughs> because oh, I'm it, sure it's, it would. Right. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure. And the reason why I can say, I, I say from my point of view, I'm sure is because, so what I, what I hear you reflecting on Catherine in that answer is there's this element of like the coded language, right. And language is always moving and evolving. So people, you know, even not being intentionally malicious, but their subconscious uh, biases, which reflect the culture in which they were raised, you know, the culture in which they live, how they were raised, um, uh, gender norms uh, in a given in a given culture, uh, social values, like all these different things do do get expressed in different ways. And there is an adapt adaptive quality to like the language changing, mm-hmm. like you said, not saying um, you're fired because you're pregnant, but saying, um, well, you're going to be on maternity leave anyway. So we're going to give this work to somebody else and the different ways in which. Um, like you said, the assumption that you are a self-published author, which is not a, a denigrating thing, but it does have some sort of like there's a story to it, right? Like it does assign a certain idea, expectation, assumption, belief that, like you said, uh, this is something I've heard a lot of our guests say on the show over the months, this this internalization of certain otherings and, and expectations that get placed up, upon us, especially well, and for diminishing a, too, right? Right. Like yeah. it's. Because it's like, 
oh, that's that's like your little hobby. That's so cute, you know. And 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 I think yeah. another thing that many of my female writer friends, and this happens to me all the time too, is that people also think that I write my books about me. Um, and which, which to me is like, oh, well, you couldn't possibly have an imagination. You know, like nobody asked Stephen King if he actually right. met it or the Tommy knockers or like lived through the stand, right? Everyone accepts that that's, but when you're writing contemporary fiction, and I think in particular, when you're a woman writing contemporary fiction, they just think that you're writing about yourself, which mm-hmm. I think again, and it, it's, I agree with you. It's not malicious, but it is this sort of like, it is a way of diminishing women's work, you know, <laughs> and mm-hmm. accomplishments. It's like, oh, it's somehow not, if you're just writing about yourself, it's not the same as if you created this whole other thing. And, um, and, and, you know, it's the way that a lot of men don't read books writ- written by women it's like oh well those aren't my stories you know and it's like Mm -hmm. i don't think women think about who the author of the books are that they pick up but men do um and marketing book marketing leans into that by making covers of books written by women almost with a message to men like this isn't for you Mm -hmm. (laughs) You Mm um and you know i remember a couple years ago somebody else's podcast that i was on not yours um but, but a male podcaster said to me, oh, you know, I read your book and I really enjoyed it. Are you surprised that I, a man, liked your book? And I was like, do you ask the male writers on your podcast if they're surprised that women like their books? Like, yeah. I'm not answering that question. You know? Yeah, like, right, what right. The hell? It's like, like either he was he was like both <laughs> – uh, it was, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's a it stupid like a thing pat- to say. It was like a, it was it was a pat on the back, right? Like, it was a compliment yeah, like, that was oh, like, oh, a man actually liked your book, <laughs> little lady. You know, like, I don't know. So, and I just think we have to be more, you know, and I think as I express in the book at one point, you know, early on, Nicole goes on a little rant and she says something like, if if men want to know why women were so angry all of the time, this might be a good place to start, you know. And it's it's yeah. just like we're tired, we're and we're tired of always having to be the ones who bring it up and point it out. And right, the emotional labor the difficult, of that too. Yeah. yeah, the emotional labor and it makes us the difficult ones. And and it's you know some stuff often takes place like right in front of other men who are not bad men and who wouldn't act like this, but they don't stand up and say like, Hey, what the hell are you saying? Like, stop that. You know, it always mm-hmm. falls to us. Mm-hmm. And, and that's exhausting. And, sure. and it's why women don't like all the way up to why they don't report sexual assaults, but even why they don't report smaller things, because it's the emotion, as you say, the emotional labor of having to do it and, and the consequences. And then like, you're the one that gets t- you know, labeled. Mm-hmm. You know, extreme example, you know, the Johnny Depp trial, Amber Heard trial, like there was already a trial in England. Like this was all found to be true. And and what even in the headlines when the verdict came out, like he, he, she was awarded money, too. So like th- this, even this jury that was very tainted by his very one sided media campaign found that he had defamed her, which means that when she said he was abusive, she was telling the truth. Right. That doesn't really get covered. It was like Johnny Depp wins. It's like, well, wait a second. No, 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 no. <laughs> you know? So, yeah. um, and, and you have to think about what those messages are that's sending down the road, right? Like mm-hmm. she, this is a rich white woman 
who, you know, is still her name trends like every day on Twitter with death threats and insanity. And imagine, you know, people who don't have access to that kind of privilege and resources and what they have to go through. So, you know, like all that to say, my book is not meant to be this polemic, like, (laughs) you know, firebrand feminist thing, but, but I think it's important to have themes in books. Um, and, you know, that's definitely a theme in that book for sure. Yeah. And it's why it's, and you're right. It's, it's, there's, um, what we're talking about is not like explicitly all a part of the story for your new novel. Like, um, it's, it's a really fun read. Uh, it's a, it's a great page turner. Um, it's a really intriguing story. And I think that just that reading your book planted these ideas in my head from like what I'm pulling and what I'm seeing, what I'm sensing in society and in the culture, I think is part of what what is really powerful about stories, right? Even when they're um, they're fiction stories and they're maybe not the most uh, melodramatic, there is quite a bit of drama, I'll say, in, in your story, as any good um, thriller and suspense book uh, does contain. Um, Catherine, your your journey of being a former attorney turned into a best selling novelist reminded me of another author uh, who's a, who's another best-selling novelist uh, who wrote some very popular books that also became movies, John Grisham. Uh, so right. I'm curious about what is it about attorneys, do you think, becoming authors? Um, <laughs> <laughs> is there something specific that you think comes in hand with being an attorney in terms of like storytelling, uh, maybe given the importance right. of something like persuasion in law. And of course, I'm taking like you, John Grisham, and there, I mean, there's probably others, um, but not to overblow the connection between law and creative writing, because my father's no, an attorney. A lot of, there's a <laughs> lot of, roy- no, there is. There is a lot of lawyers and ex-lawyers who are attorneys. I mean, I, I, I've thought about it. I may have been asked this question before, obviously, and, and I thought about it. I think there's a there's several reasons, I think, why that's true. I think just in general, um, Law is a lot of writing. The people and on TV and in movies, obviously, it's the spoken component that gets emphasized. But it is storytelling because every lawsuit begins with the recitation of facts and in in a document where you recite the facts that lead to the lawsuit and and you're telling a story and and you have to craft a narrative through a trial, through witnesses, and through your closing argument to a judge or a jury or both of you know, why you should find for your client. And you are restricted to the truth, obviously, but that doesn't mean there isn't a storytelling aspect to it and and that things can't be shaped and shaded. And so I think that's one aspect. I think there's also a lot of writing in law, like I said, and you have to learn, you know, to be a good lawyer is not just to be a good verbal communicator, but to be a good written communicator so that you are your arguments are clear and crisp and people understand them and your language is good. Um, So I think there's that part of it. And then I think also the type of people who are successful lawyers are organized and get things done and, you know, all that stuff. And I think lots of people, I mean, I meet people all the time are like, Oh, I want to write a novel. And I'm like, good, go write it. You know? Um, And I, I think, um, I think personality wise, we're the, we're often goal oriented and goal setting. And so, We'll, we'll actually do it. We won't just say we're going to do it. We'll do it. And then when we do do it, then we seek out a way of, we figure out, oh, can I get published? And what do I have to do? And so um, I think, you know, that's a lot of it, to be honest. Um, and and I think it's, you know, it's, it's a creative 
again, I, I think that people who are drawn to that profession, not because they like forced to go to law school, because they wanted to go to law school, which I did, um, is that they are drawn to the performative aspects of it also, because being a trial lawyer is also being an actor. Um, so, you know, there is a creative bent to it. And mm. sort of, you know, my two choices at 19 were like, do I try and become an actress or do I go to law school? And I, I was like, well, I, I don't want to be in a profession where I can't control outcomes ever. You know, like I knew in law I could work hard and if I had an affinity for it, I could succeed. Whereas in acting, you could be an amazing actor and nothing could ever happen for you for any number of reasons that are outside of your control. And then ironically, I ended up back in the arts anyway. So haha, ha I mean, yeah. but <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that's what I think, why I think there's a correlation. And for sure, I have a friend who went to a conference in Vermont years ago for lawyers who were thinking of becoming writers. And there were 200 people at this conference. So there are a lot of, I know a lot of ex-lawyers who are writers, for That's sure. That's really, really interesting. I was going to say when I was asking the question that my, my father is an attorney of 40 years and I would be okay. surprised, but also thrilled if he one day was just like, I wrote a novel. I can't imagine what it would contain, but um, <laughs> we can dream, right? We can dream. I'm going to give him, I'm going to let him listen to this interview and, and give him some encouragement. Maybe, uh, maybe in his retirement, he wants to do it, about, just do it. You know, I mean, I just, you just do it. You have to do yeah, it. If you don't do it, yeah. then you never did it. Right. That's, that's right. <laughs> um, so back to your novel, um, your protagonist does sound a bit like you, you mentioned the, the assumption that some people make that you're like literally writing stories right. about yourself and don't or like perhaps lack the imagination, but, but your, your protagonist is an attorney. Um, she she was I get I, th- I think Nicole was like thirty nine in the story. Um, she receives right. an email like you did, uh, but but I'm curious for your readers, what is important to know about where you and your experiences end and where the fictionalizing begins, especially for a story like this. I mean, there, <laughs> you know, um, you know for sure. I like obviously I have access into what being a lawyer in a big firm is or in a firm is like, what being a litigator is like, and so. Um, those aspects are things that I've experienced. So it's a different jurisdiction. So I had to go research the rules and even some of the legal points of New York because I practice in Quebec. And I was like, this needs to actually make sense in a New York law perspective. Um, So, but yeah, I mean, I'm not Nicole. My husband is not Dan. (laughs) I don't live in New York City. Um, And I actually didn't work in a huge firm. I was a partner in a smaller firm that um, I worked in when it started as a student. There was two lawyers when I started there and I helped, you know, grow the firm. So very different dynamic. Um, And just personality wise, um, I think, uh, you know, Nicole is very like mono-focused on her career and to the exclusion of almost everything. Like she's kept her husband, but she hasn't, she doesn't really have any friends and, and she's just sort of sacrificed everything to her career, which is really not like me. I, I, I took my career seriously. I worked hard, but uh, like my friends are also super important to me and I have a big group of friends and a social life. And um, I also had this artistic life outside of law for a long time because I did both for 10 years. Um, mm. So, um, and, and, you know, like, have I had experiences like Nicole? Yeah, of course. But I think all women have. I, I mm-hmm. was trying to universalize that experience. And, I, mm-hmm. I, you know, I want 
it to be like, I think what you were saying in your introduction, which is, you know, women read it and they're nodding their heads like, oh yeah, that's happened to me or something like that's happened to me. Um, and, you know, unlike John Grisham, um, most of my books are not set in the law world. Um, you know, I've written, I've had, this will be my 13th published novel and I think three of them have been set in the law world, but they're, they're not usually. So, um, and, you know, often the choices that people make in my books are, I like deliberately pick the opposite choice of what I would do. Yeah. <laughs> like I didn't go on the retreat, right? I was going to say, yeah, <laughs> you know? that's a big departure. I you did not I go on the go, retreat. No. And, and she's way more trusting than I am. I mean, you know, like I'm also not, I'm not, she's very attached to, I don't think it's giving anything away really is up front in the book, but they're very attached to this apartment. And I'm actually not that attached to things um, mm-hmm. and places like uh, it almost excites me to think like being forced to look for somewhere new to live. Um, whereas Nicole's like, like very focused on, on certain touchstones in her life that make her very insecure if they're taken away. Um, so I think, I think we're quite different in that way. Yeah. And I don't think I, I mean, I want to say I wouldn't have fallen for Panthera Leo. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> you know? right, right. Yeah. So um, Panthera Leo is the name of the, the women's collective that. Yeah. That sorry. The Nicole women's organization. Ends up, yeah. yeah ends, up, ends up, ends up becoming a yeah. part of, she goes on the yeah. retreat. Um, things happen. Um, so we, we know we don't want to give away anything in the story, no, but um, things happen. Well, the, things I mean, the very beginning happen. of the story, the prologue. So it's not really giving anything away is that Nicole is showing up at one of these women's apartments and finds her like shaking in a bathtub that has blood in it. So, you know, things like something things are going to go downhill. Something's not right here. Right. So absolutely. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's a thriller. So, it's, so, <laughs> there's, so there's going to be some be drama. Some, there's going to be something that's happened. That's going right. to be some drama. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. And, and Catherine, you also, I noticed in the, so, so a uh, device in the book for the, the women's organization in the book, Panthera Leo, um, use this construct called a pride. So they're borrowing that language from right. the animal kingdom uh, of like lionesses in a right. pride it, to form like these little groups. Um, but in the dedication of your book, you also dedicate your book to the women in your pride. <laughs> and I'm right, curious, ab- right. I'm curious about even without like naming names or, or mentioning individuals that what the, the women that, that constitute what you consider to be your pride, like your, your group, your, your team, um, right. uh, what, what do they mean to you and what have they meant to you in supporting your journey as an attorney and as an author? Yeah, I mean, I think for there I was really referring specifically to a group of women that, you know, I've always been close to. But during the pandemic, I think our social circles all contracted, right? Because we weren't going to go to parties. Well, I wasn't going to parties with 20 people anymore or, or whatever. And so um, there really were sort of two core groups of women uh, for me during the pandemic, my my uh, runners group. Um so four women that I, or three other women that I had run with off and on for years, including one of them is my former law partner who I started that women's organization with. And, but, but particularly during the first months of the pandemic, like we got really systematic about it, you know, we were running four or five times a week and, and it was a way of like keeping sane in the totally insane world that was 2020, um, and is still a little insane now. So, um, and then a wider group of, of girlfriends that um, include people 
like my best friend that I've known my entire life and um, other women that have come over into my life over time. And so, um, yeah, I think it's just a supportive group of women, kind of the opposite of the way women are often portrayed in TV and media, which is catty and backstabby and not supporting each other. You know, we're, we're just we're not like that. And I actually don't think most women are like that. Um, another way of diminishing women. Right. Um, mm-hmm. It's like we're. I think, I think that honestly, as a side note, that comes from the fact that like there used to only be place for one woman. Right. And so if there was another woman there, she was coming to take your place and that pits women against each other. But I don't think men feel competitive like that. Cause they're like, well, obviously we take all the places. So, you know, right. like, I'm great. Why do I I'm care about that guy? Everywhere. It's fine. Yeah. yeah. Great. You know? So I think that that is gendered too. And that was also created. These, this competition was created by feeling like there couldn't be, another person that looked like you sitting at the table, you know? Um, And it's actually a theme that um, another author explores um, in The Other Black Girl. I don't know if you read that book, but, you know, she's the only black girl in publishing and then another black girl shows up and, you know, it pits them against each other. So, um, Mm. um, but yeah, I I just think it's, it's, it's my group of female friends that I know I can turn to, you know, no matter what, um, Maybe to hide a dead body. I, that's never come up, but. <laughs> <laughs> but you never know. You never know when you're going to need it. You never it, know. You, know? <laughs> you never know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, Catherine, my, my final question for you th- this afternoon. Um, so, you're, you're a novelist. You're a storyteller. You also mentioned uh, being in the arts as you are now, but also the interest that you had in mm-hmm. professionally dedicating yourself uh, as an actor. Um what do you consider to be the the role or function of novels uh, and this kind of like fiction based storytelling, uh, as well as acting in society today from from like a cultural point of view? Um, besides entertainment, which I think is like more than enough, what do you value or what value do you place on stories like the ones that you write? Um, what do you think stories like these provide to to readers who engage in them? Well, I, I think they're time capsules of the time that we live in, which is important. I think it's contemporaneous snapshots, you know, like this book could only have been written post 2016. Um, A a different version could have been written before, but uh, I think, so I, I think it's important to live in the now. I'm, I'm a big consumer of popular culture. I watch a lot of TV, you know, I try and watch as many of the big shows as I can and read the current books and listen to current music. I grew up with parents who were like, stop listening to music in like 1968 or something. Right. And so I think it's important to live in the now. And I, I want my books to feel like the now, but also to have a, a timelessness to them. So it's, they're not so now that you couldn't pick it up five years from now and be like, Oh no, you know, this is feels out of touch. So, um, I, I think that's one of the roles. I think, um, I think that the arts are also people have platforms and it's important to speak out, um, which I do on Twitter and Instagram. And I don't do so much in my novels, not the kind of novel that I write, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, not doing that in my novels to not alienate people. That's a lot of knots, but I don't care if people don't like my politics and don't read my books because they don't like my politics. I don't care about that. And I don't exclude politics from my books for that reason. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just, I don't think that's the kind of book that I write. 
but I do use my platform such as it is <laughs> to hopefully fight for the right side of history in a public forum. And, and, and that is also what I did as a lawyer. I was involved in a lot of human rights cases and freedom of expression and things like that. And it's important to me. So, um, you know, different people in the arts take different positions about that for different reasons. And I get it. Um, but I think ultimately, like we're all part of the world that we live in. And if you don't stand up for the things that you believe in, then like, you are part of the problem. You know, I live in Canada and at many times in the last five or six years, there's always this like, I'm moving to Canada, you know, um, when things are not going well in America. And I mean, beyond the fact that like, we don't have room for y'all. So, you know, uh, <laughs> uh you know, my joke is like, hey, we're not like the backyard you get to go to when you've screwed up your front yard. You know, like you do have to solve your own problems. Right. And I have dual citizenship, so I have a stake in the game also. But like it's not a solution to just run away from the problem. You know, it's like it's it's the solution is that if the majority of people feel a certain way, then they can change things. They just have to act. Um and, and so I think in whatever way that you can do that in your life that feels comfortable, I think it's important. Catherine McKenzie is the international best-selling author of many books. Her latest is called Please Join Us. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us on the new story. Is It was a pleasure to speak with you about your writing, your new novel, and your experiences in the workplace. Thank you. And thank you for listening to this episode of The New Story Is. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you have feedback, drop me an email. The address is hello at thenewstory.is. We'd love to hear from you. If you have any suggestions for future guests, you can also send them along in an email. Let us know what we can do better. Let us know who you want to hear from. Let us know what kind of topics you're interested in hearing new stories about. You can also leave a rating and a review for us wherever you get your podcasts. That goes a long way to helping support the show and to help new listeners find our interviews. Until next time, I'm Dave Ursillo. This has been The New Story Is. Bye for now.